We're looking for two oil boys who can grease us up before each competition. You do the thing you're scared shitless of, and you get the courage after you do it. That's the way it works. That's the dumbass way to work. It should be the other way around. You'll have to excuse my friend. The town is back that way. You should make a radical change in your lifestyle. I mean, the core of man's spirit comes from new experiences. That's the way it works. Don't worry, we'll catch our break too. Just gotta keep our eyes open. Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of the Looks Like We're Lost podcast. I'm Dustin Merdazel, one half of The Lost Boys. And joining me is the other half. He can't fight, fly, or crow. It's Tommy Cooksey. That is so excellent. That was a really good pull. Really good pull. Uh, for those that are keeping track at home, that's, a, that's, the, that's the second week in a row we've had a hook reference on the, uh, on the old podcast. That's right. And I'm the pan now. What a great movie. You know, um, th- there's this scene, <clears throat> you know, in, in the tech world, people like to refer to people as SMEs, S-M-E, subject matter experts. And anytime someone says, I'm a SME, all I can think about is SME from Hook, the guy with the fantastic facial hair. Hook's like, you know, his, his little guy is whatever. And that scene where he's like, SME, I'm going to kill myself, SME. I'm going to do it, Smee. Smee. What are you doing? Stop me, Smee. <laughs> I don't know. I have Probably the exact same reaction to hearing about a subject matter expert, but the scene I always think of is when it's all going down and he's got to get out. And he's, Smee is looking around trying to make sure he has his, his things. He's getting his, his take. What about Smee? What about Smee? <laughs> what, what about, about Smee? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, same deal. So, everybody, thank you for listening. Um, we've had a couple weeks hiatus, um, but if you go back to the previous episodes, it's a lot of me and Tommy talking about billionaires going to space and the merits of such excellent action. I think, I think we finally are all in agreement. Pro-billionaires in space. <laughs> Pro-tax evasion. I don't know, man. I keep fading back and forth, but, you know, we'll, we'll, leave, <laughs> we'll put a pin in that one. But uh, we're going to pivot today. We have a guest, second time on the podcast, uh, John Ensign. Um, John was kind enough to accept a pretty sudden turnaround on offer to, to come on the podcast and talk about the current events in Afghanistan, add his perspective as a... Do you say former Marine officer, or is it one of those things like once a Marine officer, always a Marine officer? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the general, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine, it's something that's very near and dear to a lot of guys, as it should be. Um, but, you know, I'm also no longer in active duty, so in essence, I am a former. But, um, you know. Yeah, I like the once and always. Yeah. yeah agreed. Yeah. It's def- it's, there's definitely a reason that it means a lot, and it should. Hell yeah. For sure. So, uh <laughs> I guess, Tommy, I'll let you kind of set the stage into this, like why it's been on both of our minds, and then, uh, you know, hopefully we can get a little insight from from John and maybe explain why we wanted his opinion on this. <laughs> yeah, totally. And John, dude, thank again, yeah, thank you. I mean, he, 
like literally uh, two days ago, we were like, hey, can you do this on Thursday? And he's like, yeah. So we really appreciate it, man. Um, yeah, of course. Super awesome of you to do that. And, you know, I think this this is one of those – I think this feels very personal to a lot of people, especially our age, because we were old enough to see, you know, the, the Twin Tower attack and have a, a real visceral reaction to that. And, you know – we always hear about the troops in Afghanistan, the troops in Iraq, and, and it's like 20 years has gone by, like uh, ha- over half of our lifetimes, and, and I would say probably most of the people that listen to our podcast, right, probably over half of their lifetimes. And it's in some cases, it's like, holy shit, there, there, are st- there were still people actively over there. And if you're not paying attention, it's like it's still going on. And so, you know what what sat what hit me this week as we start as we pull out of this war is a couple of things one i think you know one of the things you hear you see these shirts back to back world war champions us has never lost a war um and you sit here and you're like well we didn't like in some cases i don't know that war is won or lost there's always a loser right or or, or maybe maybe i don't know so so that sat with me and then you start to see like just like this coronavirus people politicize it for for gain and and it reminds me in to make as much light of it as i can it reminds me of the spider-man pointing at each other meme it's like well this is such a liberal thing well this is such a republican thing well you know it started under this and it started under that and it's like well no there have been republican and democratic presidents since this war began and it's been going on right and so you know, I started to, <clears throat> and then, and then there were the, like, uh, Annie came home and, and she said, you know, she had eight or nine clients in one day and everybody was talking about it. And, you know, one of her clients said something to the effect of like, Hey, you know, the Afghanistan or the, the Taliban military is now the second largest in the world. And I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't think that's true, but I have no idea. Like my, my best guess would be China would be second just based on sheer number of people. But I don't, but also I don't know. I have no idea. And you know, that, then and I, I'm going long winded here, so I apologize, but these are all the well, thoughts. Can I that interject real yeah, quick? Yeah, just yeah, yeah. Because, <clears throat> because that's super interesting. And this is a tangent, obviously, but how would you even gauge in the technological age what it means to have a large military? Here is what I here's the like only thing I can a think. A million guys is not even valuable if they don't have the right tools. Yeah. I, I, and because it, we, we live in meme culture. I should say that. We live in meme it's culture. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a million people is, is a lot. Is I, I saw this same meme that said something like uh Taliban now has act, or has control of like 255 Apache helicopters, which is more than any army in the world or some, something to that effect. So I guess, you know, people see these things and I just started to get like frustrated because I didn't understand enough. And and you tie into that, you know, there's a humanitarian aspect to this. There are people that are going to, I mean, th- this is like, and I listened to that podcast. Joe Rogan had um, the, the, the lady from North Korea on her podcast, on his podcast. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh my, like that's, like we're living in a world where this stuff is happening very real and it's not a political point it is a 
but you and then you feel helpless. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, so I I, I reached out to Dusty and I was like, because we were supposed to talk on Tuesday, and I was like, dude, you, you want to talk about this? And as I was kind of going through it, I was thinking, well, maybe John would want to come back on and talk about this. And like we we mentioned in a little bit of pre-talk, like within seconds of me think having that thought, Dusty had forwarded me a message from John with his thoughts. And I was like, this is, we just got to do this. So, so I don't even know where, where to like, John, just to give you that background, like that's where my, my head's been all week is I'm trying to just understand how I feel about this thing. Um, and you know, just like, I mean, I'll give you an analogy. My, my father-in-law is a urologist. I don't care if like my son has a rash. I'm probably going to reach out to him like first, <laughs> like, cause he's a doctor. So when we're talking about like a war and with and strategic what strategic withdrawal from war and what the consequences of war and all, I would want to hear how, the perspective of someone who's been there and someone who understands and you know one of the things that struck me in our first conversation with you was like y- you didn't you didn't go you didn't join the marines because you had nothing else to do. It's very thoughtful. You're you're almost a student of student of the the craft a student of your whole family has for years generations and generations and so i don't know it just seemed like man if there's anybody that can help me understand what's going on so i can so then like the lost boys like to do take that information let it wash over us and be able to just communicate to others hey look and of course a lot of this could be your opinion too and that's fine mm-hmm won't necessarily become mine or Dusty's opinion, but it carries a little more weight because you've been there. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. that's my long winded. I probably talked for like 10 minutes right there. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I kicked it over to you cause I thought I talked too long. I, wa- I wandered stay. around and I, I, I wandered <laughs> around because again, you know, this is the subject that, like I said, I'm to, to true to the name of the podcast. I'm pretty lost on, I lost sight yeah. of, you know, just why we were there. How long we were there, you know, what, why now, why are we leaving? You know, so anyway, I don't even know where to dive in, Dusty. Maybe you can help corral me and find a a point to. Yeah, I think it's a good place to start, right? We have a lot of feelings. And so, John, I'm just curious, as somebody who spent time in Afghanistan, met the people over there, knew a little bit of their plight, but then also understand the soldier's perspective and how that differs from all the political agendas all that into the equation, how do you feel about these current events and the fact that we're withdrawing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, I've given it quite a bit of thought, especially since Dusty and I touched base uh, the other week. Um, first, first and foremost, um, I think that, like you said, Tommy, there are so many elements to this that it can be very, very, very easy just to get overwhelmed and lost in the sauce. Right, you have the humanitarian component that's going to be a result of what's happening over there. You have the the, the tactical component of, you know, the why now, like, you know, the the he said she said component of was it right, was it not, should we have, should we not have, um, you know, and then you have the component as well of of, of kind of the 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 mourning or the suffering component of people, um, like Dusty, you were talking about here, who there's a lot of people who have lost loved ones. Um, overseas and you know to see that happening that immediate question comes up it 
the dinner tables is a wife is looking across the table and her husband's not there. And she thinks to herself, why is he not here right now when they see what's happening over there and overseas right now? So there, there's all that to be said is there's so much emotion that can be balled up into seeing something like this happen. Right. And also, I think, number one, I think Americans should be encouraged across the board that we all still have something very much in common and probably the most polarized time in our society, I would argue, probably ever. And that is Americans hate losing like across the board. Americans hate to lose. We all do still. And so if anybody's looking for some encouragement at all, be encouraged by the fact that Americans hate losing across the board. And but also, I think that a good, solid historical understanding of Afghanistan, of foreign powers who have been there before, of the same instance taking place on multiple occasions prior to us. Um, number one, what I want to first communicate is that an absolute, that absolutely and in no way diminishes the human reality of people in the here and now and what they're suffering, right? Mm. Um, just because history and understanding it can give us a bit of a perspective that doesn't demean or diminish the reality that there's a lot of people right now going through a very difficult time personally. And just because it's happened before to other people doesn't mean that it's any less hurtful or impactful to people who are going through it now. But I think that that historical component, I think really kind of helps maybe temper some of the passion and the emotion. And I think that you can kind of help apply some common sense to that. So like in terms of how I'm feeling, Dusty, specifically to answer your question, it's one of those things of, from a warrior's perspective, um, not so much calling myself a warrior, but knowing the guys who are, you, you don't really have the luxury of asking and worrying about the questions of, in the end, why or why not? You know, you went into the military for the purpose of serving and the powers that be decide when and where you go. And history is filled with examples of men uh, and women who have gone forward um, and not returned. And in the end, it turned out to be for reasons and purposes from, you know, a huge international foreign policy perspective ended up being ruined. But that in absolutely no way degrades the honor and the respect of those sacrifices made. Because even though politicians are going to make a mess of things, right? And they're in very difficult circumstances and situations from a decision-making perspective. And we can talk more about that later. But, you know, so I have empathy and sympathy for politicians because there's a lot on their shoulders. There's also a lot of corruption. There's also a lot of bad things behind the scenes too, just like there isn't anywhere else in the world and anywhere else in history. It was the same thing in the Roman Senate thousands of years ago. Um, the legacy of the men and women who have fought overseas will not be diminished by what we're seeing right now on the news because in three weeks, nobody's gonna think a thing about it anymore. And, but what is gonna happen is, is around the dinner tables, um, brothers and sisters in arms who are getting together at bars around the country they're going to toast and remember those guys. They're going to tell their sons and their daughters about these people and about who they are and what they did. Their legacy is going to live on far past this garbage stuff that we're seeing right now across the media. So from from our, from my perspective as somebody who is there, it's very sad to see um, that this is how it's happening, but it's not surprising at all that it's happening. I would like to pause there because I, I feel personally convicted to emphasize this point because when I was thinking about that, like, what's that mean to all the, the families and the individuals who have served over the last 20 years? You know, I, I tried to think of different scenarios for you specifically, John, because I know you and like, how would I have felt about 
what you did if you had died over there? How do I feel about you now, knowing that you served there for a while and are now removed? And there wasn't any scenario, by knowing somebody personally who was involved, there wasn't any scenario about what's happening now where I felt less about your choices. Mm. Like the respect is is still there and maybe even maybe in some ways it's even enhanced because you always have to know and we talked a little bit about this when we had you on last time the fear involved in putting your life on the line for a cause and on some level you always kind of know that the cause is bigger than you and that's why you do it and that's what makes it intimidating because there's an element of faith in your country and the people that live in it. And that's a lot to, to try to take in and process. And I wanted to, no matter what, it's one of my, one of my worst takes of, of all time was when I was younger, I was maybe, maybe 23. And I said, uh, gosh, I'm embarrassed to even repeat it, but I, it's a bad take, right? I said that guys going overseas shouldn't get married right before they leave, that it is irresponsible to their families. And look, I've, I'm walking that one all the way back. It's a terrible, terrible opinion. But I've, I've always felt bad about not being able to empathize with that sense of duty to the amount that I would like to. And as I get older, like every passing year, I'm more grateful for the people that can do that, that can, that can take on that service. So I guess great point here to just pause and say, thank you for making that choice yourself personally. Uh, but then like, no matter where we turn this conversation, that, that part should go un, untouched. Yeah. Whether there's agreement about, should we have been there? Should we not? Did we stay too long? Mm-hmm. Was the humanitarian effort worth the personal cost? Like all of that is a separate conversation than the individual's choice. And it's one of the things I love about America is that we still value and hold on an equal plane, the individual's decision. Yeah. So, Tommy, I'm sure you feel the same way about that. Yeah. I just wanted to kind you of know, I, clear I, that. Yeah, totally, man. And I and I think um, it, for some reason it, it's and, – and I don't know how this has happened, but it's almost like <clears throat> uh, – so I've come to a place where I absolutely support the men and women that serve in our troops, 100%. And in the same breath, I can say, I really don't want them over in war. I don't want them to be in war. And it's somewhere along the line, it was like, well, if you don't support war, you don't support our troops. Like, that was kind of the sentiment. And it's like, well, I'd actually rather them not be in harm's way if we can avoid that. I mean, I know it's unavoidable, but I think I think both can exist. I think you can support our troops and be for less involvement in in wars. But anyway... Not that, again, John, when you yeah. were, I was just gonna say, John, when you were over there, because I feel like 
this because this has been going on for 20 years, we've gotten a lot of different explanation for why we were there. When you were there, what was your impression of what you were trying to accomplish? And w- yeah, maybe what years were you there? That might help us help people oh, kind of put a frame point. of mind too. <laughs> yeah, so I was there. We went in, I believe, October 7th, 2001 was the first day of combat operations in Afghanistan. Um, so that's, I mean, that's less than a month after 9-11. Um, so number one, that shows, number one, that shows you how effective the American intelligence apparatus is. Um, but, uh, number two for us, when we were there, the mission set had changed, um, from, you know, being more of an offensive kind of focus at the onset of the war to number one, oust the Taliban. And then number two, to degrade Al Qaeda's ability to plan, prepare, and execute terrorist attacks abroad. Ours had changed more to what would be a counterinsurgency operation. Um, so you go into a certain, you go in, you, you, you seize, you secure a certain area, you hold it. And then once you hold it, you allow the buildup of, you know, infrastructure in terms of, um, for us specifically, that's working with, uh, in coordination or cohesion with the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police um, operating with them. And then also we had kind of cohorts attached to different units who were responsible for helping train uh, those individuals. So for us, by the time we were there, it was more about holding the terrain that we had and allowing the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police to begin to uh, both to continue to train, but also to begin to take over um, operations in the area. Hmm. I wonder, I don't want to, I don't want to harp on this too much, but and maybe you you have a feeling on this, Tommy. I'll state my opinion and just let you guys react. I don't see occupying a territory and withdrawing as failure. I think that if the goal had been to make Afghanistan like the 51st state of America, we could have done it. Like, there's enough power... Like, we could have just taken it. But I I think there's a lot of reasons we don't want that to happen, and the world doesn't want to see that happen. And so what were we going to do? Stay there for eternity? Maybe. Like, that. I guess that's a possibility. But there's been a significant portion of this country for the last, I don't know, maybe ever since we left to get over there that has been saying we shouldn't be there. And at some point, you know, at some point maybe we should have just like taken a national vote on this. I know that's not the way our government works, right? But like at some point it seemed like it was going to end. And maybe there's like this emotional whiplash to it. But I don't feel like a sense of defeat as a country. And I wasn't around for Vietnam. You get the feeling that that had some like real negativity to the way we thought about like our soldiers and our chain of command. And I don't feel that way about the military right now with this withdrawal. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a loss, even though to your point, John, like, it's very clear we don't like the feeling of losing 
or like the Taliban kicked us out or something. Yeah, for sure. Right? Tommy, do you have any thoughts that you want to interject no, before I... You dive in, dude. Yeah, so anybody who thinks that the United States military was bested on the battlefield in Afghanistan and that is the result of us withdrawing, um, you're very, very, very wrong. Um, that is not in any way, shape, or form what is taking place. And when you see what's going on right now, when you see the, you know, the different news, I, I have not looked at the news in four months until you reached out to me the other day, just so I could get a bit of an idea of, you know, what, what, what different people were saying and the different things being conveyed and, and, and things like that. Um, I haven't looked at the news in four months. It was about four months ago. And I was like, I'm done with this. I was like, any, any news outlet, any perspective, any agenda, I don't care. I'm just, I'm done with it. Um, and, uh, the, the way it's being portrayed is that the United States, you know, the military component is being run. That is not what has happened. I don't think that there's been a single American combat death in Afghanistan for like a year and a half. Wow. So we're not in active ground, you know, combat operations, at least on a, um, you know, we'll obviously have special operations individuals and very, very specialized individuals running operations over there right now. They probably will continue to do so. But um, it's been some time, I think, since we've had kind of like boots on the ground, counterinsurgency operations in force, um, conventional, you know, line companies, line platoons out. I don't think that that's been happening for quite a while. Um, so what's happening right now from a withdrawal perspective is where I think the historical component really can come into play to really help people understand kind of the, the how, right? So if you look at, not the, not the specifics, I'm not talking about the humanitarian crisis that's going to be a result of the destabilization of a nation, which you can look at a myriad of examples throughout history of what that looks like, and it's not pretty, right? I'm not talking about even the tactical component, just the big overarching theme of what's happening in Afghanistan right now is that a major foreign power is withdrawing from Afghanistan under very, very poor circumstances. Like the big overarching thing is happening. That is what's happening right now. And since the Anglo-Saxon Wars um, from the, the 19th and, and, and early 20th century, or the Anglo-Saxon, I said Anglo-Saxon, I'm sorry, the Anglo-Afghan, the Anglo-Afghan Wars with the British Empire in Afghanistan, um, there's been two other instances of this since that, them, the Russians, and us, right? Um, I think that there's a tendency to want to lock those together. Like there's the idea of Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires. And we live in the day and age where people like to look at headlines and then they like what it says. They make assumptions and they talk like they're an expert and they actually didn't even open the article itself. They just mm -hmm. saw the headline. Um, people have a tendency to talk about, you know, the graveyard of empires and people have no idea what that means. It's like, okay, well, what empires have been there? Why did they leave? Um, and I think the common thread uh, I, from what I've researched, and, and I would like, you know, I'm not a historian, but I, I've looked at what historians have said, and I would be very interested if I'm wrong to, to listen to the perspective of someone who knows better. But in Afghanistan, I think the commonality between the British, between the Russians, and between us is that the Afghan people are very mistrustful of any foreign, or foreign power that's on their soil, both like that's present physically on their soil. They're very mistrustful. And then also the Afghan people have never been, and I would argue are probably never going to be willing to approve of or subject themselves to any governing structure that is being put in place by a foreign power. Um, they refused to do, they refused it under the British empire. They refused it when the uh, Russians tried to prop up an Afghan communist uh, regime that was coming to power and uh, they have refused it again. 
Um, what what is it States. about that? Is it is it is it sort of like the devil you know versus the devil you don't like, or or is it just total mistrust? Like, what is it about this country that you know it, it gets a name like the uh, graveyard mm-hmm. of empires? Like that's that's like some Lion King stuff, man. Yeah, like, it's crazy. So what, what? I mean, it what, is a great name though. I mean, it, it's really yeah yeah, but like, like you know. What is like? What is it about this country in particular? Is it just so unstable that everyone's like, it's like the wild stallion, right? Everyone wants to tame the wild stallion. You know, is it oil? Um, is it? I don't. You know, I, I like. What is it that these major nations, when they've been at the peak of power, have said we're going to go in and we're going to get the Taliban out of here, this radical stuff out of here, and we are going to put help them put into place. A stable government like what, what is it do you have any perspective on that because i have no idea to be quite honest yeah i have i have some thoughts um now granted there would be those who know are far more informed but from what i've done from a research perspective afghanistan first and foremost is an ancient ancient place um and i'm not talking about like europe ancient i'm talking about cradle of civilization ancient yeah. place <clears throat> Jerusalem, it, it is, like Israel. Yeah, exactly. Like it is an ancient place and they have seen so much. And, you know, the Persian empire brought them in. I believe the Mongol empire at some point had some influence there. Alexander the Great himself marched through some of the very places that I believe I was at in Afghanistan using the Khyber Pass, which the Khyber Pass in Afghanistan and around Jalalabad is one of those kind of avenues that you can kind of get through the Hindu Kush or just south of it and then make your way from you know, Southeast Asia and Asia into Eurasia, and then obviously into the Middle East and then Europe itself. Um, so it's a very ancient place, first and foremost. And then also when it comes to specifically, Tommy, to what you're talking about from a centralization perspective, number one, you have to understand Afghanistan is a bit of a crossroads, right? It's a bit of a crossroads, like I said, from Asia to Eurasia to, to Middle East and Europe. Um, so there's always been a lot of, lot of different people coming in and through. Um, so first of all, you got to understand that centralization of power is a very foreign idea to those individuals, because if you look at a tribal landscape of Afghanistan itself, it's a lot of different tribes over there, right? Um, it, it, it's an area where the borders of the country itself were established by foreign powers. They were established mm-hmm. by the Russians and by the British who were kind of at odds with each other during the Anglo-Afghan wars, which is why Afghanistan got brought into the fray because two imperial powers were infringing on each other and there was this blank space on the map called afghanistan that they didn't even know anything about um and then you know britain paid the penalty for trying to go in and figure it out but um if you look at the southern part of afghanistan you have the pashtuns right and the the border of afghanistan its southern border cuts directly through the center of the tribal pashtun people so the northern part of pakistan and the southern part of afghanistan are separated by by a national border but the pashtun people look at that and they're like my, yeah. my family, my family's in northern Pakistan. They're not Pakistanis, they're Pashtuns. Mm. And then once you get up into the Hindu Kush and in the northern mountains, you have uh, a myriad of different tribes. And then obviously the terrain profile of Afghanistan itself is savage. I mean, 75, I think 75%-ish mountainous in the Hindu Kush. And these aren't rolling hills either. I mean, this is the base of the Himalayas running up to the Himalayas. So this is savage terrain. And then you have a lot of desert areas as well. It's not a very hospitable place. And so these individual valleys and ridgelines and ravines kind of act as quasi-internal borders themselves in some regards 
for some of these individual tribes, right? So you'll have a warlord or a chieftain inside of a certain valley who kind of runs it almost like a feudal state. And then, you know, two, three ridgelines over, you might have a, di a differing tribe who's under the control or, or the influence of a different um, tribal leader. Um, and then so you try to bring the idea of centralization of power into a place that has barely any paved roads whatsoever. Wow. Um, you know, Afghanistan, I think, is barely bigger than, than um, Paris, or uh, I said Paris, France, is barely bigger than France. And I think I, I, my numbers might be slightly off, and if they are, I apologize. But I think at one point, in a nation as big as France, there was about 50 kilometers of paved roads at one point. Oh and just God. to give some context, in France, there's over like a million kilometers of paved roads in France. So yeah. if you think about it from an infrastructure perspective, from a terrain perspective, an ultra-cultural kind of tribal perspective, the idea of centralization of power is a very, very foreign idea. Uh, to these individuals. So I think that that's you know, probably it's, why it's difficult. What's interesting about that, like I didn't think about like the tribal nature because we just tend to talk about Afghanistan as like a singular community. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, not to make a direct comparison with the United States, right? But like when we have trouble internally, it's because we don't think of ourselves as Americans. We think of ourselves as like a Democrat or a Republican or like I'm a Southerner. Or I'm a, you know, like I'm, I'm a Georgia boy. I don't know why I'm picking on Georgia boys, <laughs> but like, like we start to think of ourselves as like this other thing and we deserve autonomy from even our, our fellow countrymen. And I don't disagree with that, but that leads to less cohesive action. Right. It's it's kind of the very thing that created the turmoil that we're talking about around our action within the country. But I think like unifying can make a country really strong, but it also makes it a little bit more predictable, a little easier to tackle. And, you know, it's kind of like, would you rather fight one big guy or or two little guys? I'd rather fight one big guy. And like three guys, no chance, you know? And I think that you're probably, you're probably going to have a much harder time making progress as a tribal nation, but you're also a lot tougher to defeat. You can't just like lop the head off and the rest of the country goes with it because it's not a single head, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think that there's something that's interesting about that that sort of take, and then also a lack of infrastructure. We talked about this on our, our last podcast with you, John, how like, I think a lot about like, if I was the last man in an apocalyptic scenario and like, I had to teach everybody everything, and I'm handicapped by technology, right? Like, if you wanted to topple the United States, like, look, it's a, a very difficult idea, right? But it's like, if you took away our power, and like our ability to use technology, a lot of Americans would just be flummoxed. But when you talk about like a tribal people, you can't, and a tribal people who's used to like living off the land, farming, irrigation, I, there's not like an easy off switch, right? Like the resources they're used to living on are everywhere. I, I just, I don't know, I wanted to talk that, I just hadn't thought of that the the problem from that angle of complexity 
that like being being a little simpler and less centralized like it it may not make you more powerful but it might make you more difficult to beat there there's a lot of like um like the geopolitical stuff that that blows my mind because in, as i hear you talking john i'm like you know one of the just that comes to mind i think of like africa and i think of like the native americans that lived here before you know um the europeans it's like they yeah they of course they killed they killed each other like that i mean it, it, it's their tribes they're, they're but they were they were live and let live they they were they were okay living as tribes like there was definitely some terrible things that be, it's like the us and and not just the us but like you know civil you know the i won't say civilized first world nations are like we got to get you up to our standard like we have a standard and this is what it is and you got to be there too and it's like maybe that's not maybe that's not and and then i look at stuff like um you know north korea is a good example um what are they the uh what are what are the muslims in like northern china the um weedles is it the weedles i think it's the weedles they're they're basically being put in concentration camps like millions of people and um i don't know it just seems like we're trying to force you know we 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 we, we tried to make something show them the better life right you know this is the, this is the way and they were, they're like, you know, no, nah. no. Nah. Yeah. yeah. And I think that it, it, something that I think is, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's some commonalities between, you know, from the historical perspective that we're kind of leaning into between the British, the Russians and us. Um, and the reason I say the British and Russians is I feel like those are the best examples for right now in the context of the conversation. You know, you can go back to, you know, ancient empires in that area. But I think right now th- that's probably the best place to focus in on. Um, America's dilemma in Afghanistan, right, is a little bit different in terms of the onset, right? So the British go in because there's an, another imperial power during the imperialization time in, in the world. You know, there was that quote that the sun never set on the British Empire, right, mm-hmm. because it was so big around the world. Yep. And so, you know, you got two imperial powers and Afghanistan kind of get caught, gets caught in the middle. Um, you know, the Russians come into Afghanistan uh, because at the time, you know, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, these different uh, now sovereign nations on the border of Afghanistan were a part of the Soviet Union. So the Soviets want to come in and prop up a communist government because obviously that benefits. It's a very small portion of the southern border of the, of the Soviet Union at the time, but obviously that benefits them. Um, the United States going into um, Afghanistan was a very different circumstance, right? Like I was listening to actually the Joe Rogan podcast. He had a younger guy on there a few day, days ago, and he talked about Afghanistan, and he talked about how going in there, we did so under false pretenses. And, and I don't know that individual, and, and it would be great to have a conversation with him. But if he's talking with Joe Rogan, he's not going to be talking to me. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so, us either. But, yeah, so, um, but all that to be said is, you know, he's completely wrong. Um, and I think people have a tendency, the war on terror, right, is kind of the banner under which Afghanistan and Iraq are fought. But those are very two different conflicts in terms of the reasons that they were started. Um, now, we're not going to talk about Iraq and get into the weeds on that, but the pretense for us going into Afghanistan was in no way, shape, or form false. Like, you had a Taliban regime who gave safe harbor to the terrorist organization who planned, prepared, and executed the most deadly, American, the most deadly terrorist attack on American civilians ever. Um, and, you know, people equate it to Pearl Harbor, but Pearl Harbor 
was a strategic attack by a military power on the military target yeah. to degrade yeah. that country's ability. It was to a war. It was a war battle, right? Exactly. It was, exactly. It, yeah. Right. And, and you know, we're watching our our fellow Americans jump, you know, from a hundred stories up who just went to work to do an honest day's yeah. work to escape a thousand degree fuel air, air fuel fire. It's like the difference between a uh, someone in a boxing match versus a sucker punch, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So our, the the reason that we went into Afghanistan, we had as good a reason as any to go into that nation to destabilize and to, um, to, to degrade the Al Qaeda's ability to have a safe haven to plan more terrorist attacks abroad, um, you know, in this specific instance against Americans or American interests, but really, you know, they would have done so against, you know, a myriad of different countries as a whole. So it benefited not only America, but a lot of the world to ensure that that terrorist cell was degraded um, and was put on the run. Um, but, that's where, for America, if you understand the historical component of Afghanistan and what it's done to empires in the past, we didn't really intend to, but you get you, you get pulled into that trap that is Afghanistan. And because a good example is that the British Empire at the end of the first Anglo-Saxon, I expect you so mad when I do that, but the, <laughs> the Anglo-Afghan War at the end of the first one, um, there was... Uh, the, I'm sorry, I have to be very succinct on this because I can run that rabbit hole. There was a, uh, a, British, uh, a, a, a British intelligence officer who did virtually a great adventure walking from northern British India all the way up um, through Afghanistan. And um, then he also made his way over towards Persia and then back. And it was, he was able to kind of visually see Afghanistan really in its travel component for the first time. I believe maybe Alexander Burns, I believe, may have been his name. And he wrote a book about it. It'd be a great book to read to understand the travel component of what Afghanistan is. But, um, you know, he gave the recommendation not to institute a new king in Afghanistan at the end, first, end of the first Anglo-Afghan War that would have been kind of a puppet king for Britain because he knew that the Afghan people wouldn't go for it. Um, you know, he said, he said, don't do it, but they did it. And that king, um, I believe, name, I made it. Um, it was Shah so Shoja was his name, and he was quickly deposed um, by the Afghan people because he was a proxy king for the British and they knew it. But at the end of the second Anglo-Afghan War, they gave approval to a new ruler who was the grandson of one of their previous enemies during the Anglo-Afghan War and the first Anglo-Afghan War. So they learned you, you can't put in somebody in power that is in, in, that, that you know the Afghans know is there because of you. Right now, the only condition of that was that, they, you know, they controlled foreign policy. But um, the reason I give that example is once we had degraded, started to degrade uh, Al Qaeda's capabilities, we didn't have the luxury of allowing the Taliban to resume their role because we could have done that. Right. You could have been like, OK, Al Qaeda has been neutralized in this area. We don't want to get stuck in a major conflict for extensive amounts of time. Right. Because the Russians went in and their initial their, their initial expectation was 12 months in Afghanistan, prop up the communist government there and then we're out. Nine years later, that government's been destroyed and they're, they're, they're withdrawn. Right. So it's like there, there's a trap that is Afghanistan that if if you get into the component of nation building, you're going to find yourself in a rough spot. Right. But for America, it wasn't so cut and dry because you can't allow the Taliban to retake power because they're the ones who allowed that vacuum or they're the ones who allowed that safe space for that terrorist organization to grow. Right. So it's like if we can't just give back power as it was and then depart and withdraw because we're going to create the same circumstance possibly again, what do we do? Right. And, and so 
That's, John, this it, is going to sound like a dumb question, and you can probably answer it pretty quickly. Because I, I think Dusty Dusty had a question to ask too. This would be nice when we can do this in person. Um, I, when I hear Taliban and Al Qaeda, I think synonyms. Hmm. Can you like like in a sixty seconds just help me understand? Because it's like, okay. yeah, I, I don't yeah. know. Maybe it's not sixty seconds, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try. So, you guys ever seen the movie Charlie Wilson's War? Yes. Dusty's a movie things. guy. I have not yeah. seen Charlie Wilson okay. before. So it, it, it's, an, it, it's an entertainment example, but the United States fought a proxy war with Russia and Afghanistan via CIA funding to give the Mujahideen at the time modern weaponry in order to be able to effectively fight against the Russians. The United States, after they had done that and the Mujahideen had won out, they did not have a plan of what to do to support the Mujahideen or those, you know, what could possibly be a friendly governmenting structure it would take control of Afghanistan. There was no plan. So it resulted in virtually kind of a, a quasi civil war in Afghanistan. The Mujahideen, there was some internal fighting from that void that was left at the end of the Russians leaving was born the Taliban. And so it was in the end, in essence, not directly, but indirectly, it was kind of a beast of our own making, but they were a very conservative, right? They, they, they are very conservative in terms of the application of their Islamic faith and Sharia law. They're a very conservative, um, you know, it, it, you know, sect of Islam that was in control and in power in Afghanistan. Um, so they were they were a governing authority, um, and uh, in Afghanistan itself, and Al Qaeda was nothing more than a separate cell of terror uh, of a terrorist organization um, who was not a part of or affiliated with the Taliban, but were given safe haven to be able to operate. Mm, okay, is that similar? What was the what, what were the um... The radicals um, under the Trump administration that we that we went into, they weren't. It wasn't Afghanistan. The QAnon guys. Oh, Not ISIS. ISIS. That's what it was. Yeah. God, that's dang. it. QAnon. They were <laughs> radicals like, too, hey, but not. They were th- radical. Yeah. Yeah. No. So ISIS again is you know a bit of a vacuum after our, our, our withdrawal from Iraq and stuff like that, and also okay. the, destabil- the destabilization of Syria as a whole. There's just it, it creates a bit of a bubble and a vacuum for individuals like that to kind of come, you know, to begin to grow sure. and gain influence and stuff like yeah. that. So there's a bit of a similarity there. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Sorry, Thank Tommy. You. I thought you were reaching for an extended metaphor about uh, radical subsets of a larger group. Yeah. But but I, no but, I can, but I can see the parallel now. Yeah. But well, I guess. Oh, go ahead, John. No, but I think real real quickly, I think that that dichotomy, uh, both the historical component, but I, I think it helps paint the light of it's not as black and white as people think in terms of why we stayed there. It's not, it's not as simple as just go in there, degrade Al-Qaeda and leave. And then, you know, whatever happens next happens because it could result in the exact same circumstance Mm -hmm. being created, right? The whole purpose is don't give terrorists a safe place to be able to plan, play, prepare and execute. Right. So it's like, Mm -hmm. you can't give it back to the Taliban and then you fall into the reality that you have to, you almost are forced to try to nation build, but history shows us that the Afghan people are not going to accept any type of governing structure that's being put up and propped up by a foreign power. It, 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 it really does create what feels like an impossible situation. And what, what makes it such that you and there's, there's probably no real parallel here. But World War Two, you go in, you take out Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini. Um 
and you win the like the wars the war is won they they concede and the the nations are able to build back up is it just because is it just because it's not like we're battling a nation with a firm leader we're battering battling a subset ideology. an ideology yeah an ideology yeah, yeah. and and you know but even but even you know nazism is an ideology but mm-hmm. but what is it about was it because he was the head of the country or you know i guess what what made it you know i don't know you know you know i don't know if i'm driving at anything here i'm just trying to understand like you know i think i could take a stab at that yeah and this it, yeah. is purely guessing right like i have no idea but i think it kind of goes back to what i was saying about like scale and size like germany in world war Two is essentially like an america today in in a way right major world power and a lot of the people, like, in order to have something that big move, you need to bring in a lot of people around the idea of nationalism. It's the only thing that's big enough. So you make up this idea about, like, German superiority. And then that kind of catches on in Europe and Italy. is trying to be like, actually, our way is the best. And, you know, the... Japan, I don't understand as well, <laughs> but being like an island country who had developed their own philosophies and trying to expand under the same sort of authorita- authoritarian, am I saying that right? Authoritarian movement. I think that all of those things are big enough that when you collapse them, you have kind of a uh, populous swell of that really hurt. Mm. I'm not ready to get back on board. But when something is decentralized like Afghanistan and it they're not losing the same degree of living, like they're not getting knocked from a first world country down to a third world country like with what happened in East Berlin, right? Like it doesn't feel the same way. It feels like you had your land, somebody's there like in your space. And when they're finally kicked out, it's it's kind of an emotional thing. Like I'm I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of what's happening with like a person. But it's almost like the Afghanistan movement didn't get big enough. I guess this is and John, if you have a, a completely different opinion on that, I mean I've just thrown out hearsay. Right. No, no, please keep go please please keep going. The thing that I'm kind of interested in is if we were to back up like we we now have the benefit of hindsight 9-11 is 20 years ago wow that's that's coming up this is the 20 year anniversary Mm -hmm. that's wild uh so 9-11 is 20 years ago there's no way like, if you try to actually remember what that was like, and like you said, the the idea that the building was so hot that the idea is, do I want to stay here and burn to death or do I want to jump to death? Like, picking your... It's kind of like getting a suicide option. But, hey, you have to commit suicide. What do you mean I have to commit suicide? Right? That sounds like I'm being murdered by circumstances. The... If you put yourself back in that time and how how that felt. We had to do something like you can't just let that go unaddressed. 
But now we have this 20 years of, of perspective. Like, what would be the right way to handle a terrorist attack like that? Like, do you just go in, try to punish the exact group that is responsible, and then, like, well, whoever else happened to be in that territory harboring this group, like, yeah, we've come in and we've, we've destabilized your political climate. Well, you're on your own now. That doesn't seem moral either. And you'd think, like, you'd think we'd have a better handle on, like, what we should have done, right? Like, you reassess everything. And I guess what I'm saying when I said I don't know that it feels like a failure, I'm still not, I'm not convinced that it was mishandled at all. Like, there was, I, it was unfortunate, like, war always is. Like, it would have been great if we hadn't been in that position. But I don't know that anybody, like, people say we went over under false pretenses. I'm with you, John. Like, that's not the way it felt to me at the time. And I'm not making those calls, but I was definitely on board at the time. I don't know that I, I really would say we should have done it a different way. Yeah, and, and I think the, the certain, like, People, you know, I think people need to also take a step back and look at the picture of when you have, and make, make no mistake about these terrorist organizations, they are pure evil. Like, there's no Western bias in that. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what, what your worldview is. These people, you know, Osama bin Laden and the like uh, of al-Qaeda terrorists, the, the, you know, the fruit of their actions displays who and what they are. They are pure evil. Make no mistake about it, and you know, you know, every, you know. There's, there, there's going to be, you know, the, you, you know, there's going to be listeners that you have who have a different worldview of mine and my intentions. Not to isolate anybody, but like, you know, from my worldview and my perspective, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where, you know, there, there is very much good and there is very much evil, and it's, it, it, it's a world where you, you cannot allow evil in such a way to be uncombated. You cannot say, well, you know, it, you, 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 we live in a fallen world, and it's, never, it's not going to be perfect. And, you know, you look at that situation and I know and I remember clearly the climate of the people of the United States when the two, when the towers fell. like the American people would not have settled for anything less than retribution in some component or another. Like and no nation on earth would like no nation on earth would. You can look at it however you want in retrospect. I was you guys were there. I was there. I know the crystal clear blue day in the car with my brother driving down Highway 135, hearing on the on the radio that they think that something may have run into the World Trade Center. Turning around, my brother took me to the community center in Greenwood, excuse me, in, in Greenwood, Indiana, and we shot some basketball in the morning at the community center. And then we walked in, and on this big screen TV with blue carpet and an L-shaped couch, sat there. Like I, I can depict all this because it was such an impactful moment. Like, you cannot allow something like that to go unaddressed. You just, you just, you just can't. Um, you know, and so for us to have gone, we, I'm not going to say that we didn't have a choice because you always have a choice. But the choice to go into Afghanistan to neutralize that threat um, is absolutely and unequivocally the right decision. But there's a reason that they probably picked the place that they were at. And, you know, they, they may be evil, but they're, they're not stupid. And there's a reason that they probably were where they were. Number one, it was just a, a safe harbor in general, but also to go in and to do that, like we talked about earlier, that there's a bit of a trap that is Afghanistan on the back end once you do do that. And it, it, 
it, it's a very difficult, it's not as black and white as people think, kind of like what we talked about Dusty prior to. Well, I think too that, so this is the more skeptical side of me that comes out in a lot of things, but if, if you're leading a nation, heck, if you're leading a family, and something tragic happens that you need to address, and you also are attentive and have knowledge of opportunity that can be a boon to your country, something like the price of oil. I don't think that the, you know, the, the moral retribution of the terrorist act needs to, you don't need to ignore the sensible action of that because there was also some coinciding self-interest that took place. Like, those two things can mutually exist, and that's a complicated thing for people to accept. But when you're responsible for the well-being of a nation, it is difficult to be a person in power and not look at that and say, like, hey, we were injured here. We should also take a little something for our trouble. And I'm not saying that was even done. I wasn't in those rooms. But it's always struck me as, like, we have to pick one of those two sides. Like, was it, was it false pretenses or were we there for the right reason? And I'm more, I'm more of the mind that we were probably there for both, right? And ultimately, I don't even know that it matters at all for me if there was like a, a second tier motivation. You know, I... I think a lot of people, to your point, were invested in why we were over there in the first place. And then it gets very sticky as to how you, how you withdraw from it. And I guess we're in, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of curb us here. I guess the, the last thing I have to say on it is this, and I, man, all your all your perspective here, John, just like it does two things. One, it makes me feel like I want to go back to history class again. Yeah, dude. Like I I was not as invested as I should have been in college. I'm sorry, Doctor Span. <laughs> sorry, Doctor Neff. Uh, because now today I find it fascinating, like just hearing about the way this the you know civilization rises and falls and evolves, but. The other thing that you've made me certain of that I suspected was that I don't have enough expertise to have an authoritative opinion on how things should have been done over two decades of complex foreign policy and action. And the the absolute place I will not land on is denigrating anybody who is doing their absolute best in a wartime situation, which is only here because the worst of humanity is bubbled up and it takes some of the best of humanity to respond. And that is tough all over. 
And so I, I feel, I feel more grounded in that stance and just my appreciation for the men and women involved from our side of the lines. And, uh, I think that's about as much of an opinion as I need to need to have. So, unless any any closing statements from from the group here before I get into our segments. I mean, not not for me, man. And and I, John, I echo your point too. Where <clears throat> anybody who's was probably let's just say in high school in two thousand and one vividly remembers that day and I can I can remember the temperature like I can remember what it felt like the air felt like um and I can also say that I don't know that I've that we as Americans have ever felt more American together um and what a shitty circumstance to be under for that to happen but damn, if I don't like crave that sometimes, like I crave not, not the not the event, but the the feeling of like everybody felt the same way for the most part, right? Being united, states of America. I mean, again. yeah, it's just it's it was a it was yeah yeah uh, and and also like mourning, you know, people you never knew or met or would have ever met, you know, in their family. So anyway. Well said by both of you guys. I probably sounded like an idiot for most of this. I don't know a lot about the war, which is why I was asking very fundamental questions. So I appreciate you guys um, walking with me through that. And just a quick um, show note or fact check. It's the Uyghurs. That's the, the, not the Weedles. The Uyghurs. The Uyghurs. Uyghurs. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was close. I had the first part, but yeah, anyway. Uh, either one of them sound like uh, bad musical elements. Yeah. Yeah. Is it the Weebles? That's the, it's the Weebles. It's the Weebles, yeah. The kids band? Yeah. Yeah. And uh the the Wow Did That Age Horribly song Wigger. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So good goodbye to both those trends. Yeah. One obviously worse than the other. Yeah. So uh we'll get into our segments here. And uh Tommy has seen this question before, John, so I'll uh, I'll let you wait till last, and if you want to answer, feel free. Okay. But I don't think it's a tough one. The yeah. question is, who do I feel most myself around and why? And for any new listeners to the pod, this comes from a card deck called We're Not Really Strangers, the self-reflection edition. Tommy and I have done one question every episode, over halfway through the pack. But uh, it's it's led us to some... Uh, good, good personal insight and uncovering some things. So, who do I feel most myself around, and why? You mean to go? Yes, yeah, swing away. Um, I mean, it, you're right. It, this this may be the easiest question, but for me, it's Annie. It's my wife. Um, and in fact, it's probably the reason that I wanted to marry her in the first place is. You, once we started dating, it was like, oh wait, I don't have to put on a front. I can be stupid. I can, I I test my stupid jokes out on her. Like I was listening to Armchair Expert, and Dak Shepard was like, yeah, his wife Kristen Bell laughs at like one out of ten of his jokes just to keep him honest. 
and it like I'm like I'm like that's like that's me and Annie, um, and so I don't know if a lot of explanation is really needed. I mean, I- I'm free to show my flaws. I'm free to show my vulnerabilities. I'm not afraid to. Here's a good. I'm not afraid to sing in the car in front of her. Like, you know, like that. That's a good. That's a good threshold, especially if you're not a great singer. Even though I was in a band, emo band. I was gonna say. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Autumn Place. Autumn Place. They were big for a reason. Uh, big in their own minds. But anyway, um, you know, it's it's hands down. It's Annie, and uh, you know, for any 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 number of reasons. But just you know, allowing me to kind of be me, it it makes it really easy. So. Well, thank you for sharing. Hey, man. Happy to be here. Uh, it's. I told Katie when I mentioned this question, I was like, well, Tommy's going to say Annie. <laughs> like, yeah. And it really, it really speaks to, in my mind, the difference between you and me as people. Because for you, like, you just need somebody who you can, like, be vulnerable around and, like, open up more to. For me, I'm married to Katie because I need to shut portions of myself down. Like I've got I've got a little bit more corrosive aspects of my personality that like left to run wild, I you know, I justify my own actions to like any end and like I I need an accountability partner to a degree. Like I think more of me being more of myself is not always a good thing. <laughs> so, right. the, oh, so, you, so you're uh, you're falling back on bigger and more is better, huh? <laughs> that was that was a dusty it's, hot take for a long time. Bigger is always better. <laughs> that was a that was a hot take. Right up there with new is always better. It's like just like expand, expand. Yeah. yeah. I, you know what? I was in a growth period then, and now like my life. My life motto is the road narrows. It's you're all right. About focus. It's like, you're like, yeah, it's, you're, it's like uh, you added all these, all, all those friends from college on Facebook and now you're slowly deleting them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to learn. Yeah. It's, I, I, look, I think there's a period of life. There's a little bit of a tangent, but there's a period of life that is like this. Like you're growing as a kid and you need to open yourself up to all these curiosities. And for some of us, that growth track is longer, sometimes necessarily. And like, my 20s was a lot of experimentation, a lot of, like, let's see what all this stuff is about. And I feel more confident about the decisions I make now in my 30s because, like, I went down those roads. Like, I answered a lot of questions through, like, failure and experiment a lot. But, you know, I'm now pretty sure of what I'm doing. But I say all that say, like, one of the things I had to find out is that I needed a life partner who was like a little bit of a check on me. And so I don't feel like Katie is the person I'm most myself around. I feel like I'm or with her. I am an improving, like I'm, I'm exploring a, a more steady version of myself. The person who I'm most myself around is Chris, the sauce Bubeck shout out. Uh, <laughs> great. I've, I became really close friends with him in eighth grade, and we've been tied ever since. I just saw him on a trip back to Kansas City. And part of that is time. Um, he's known me in all my iterations, right? And, like, I can say anything 
it can be the most off color on color he kind of he knows it all and i both better and worse i don't feel a need to check myself if i've got a disgusting thought and i want to talk about it i'll talk about it i know he's game even if he totally disagrees whereas with katie i might be like keep that one in the holster dust yeah so that's that's the answer to my question, but I do think that like looking at it from those perspectives kind of tells you a lot about who you are. Do you need more of you or less of you? And I'm a less of me guy. <laughs> I don't need someone to open me up. Yeah. You know? I definitely, you're right. You're right. I definitely need the invitation and the space to be more of me. So that's a good call yeah. out, dude. You know, you know me better than I know myself. Hey, man. We... The, the nice thing is we both found what we needed. That's right. That's the key. John, do you have an answer to this? Yeah, it's a really easy one for me. It's my brothers. Uh, I have three brothers close with all of them, and uh, we uh, got a lot of sh- similar shared experiences a lot of times together. That, uh, you know, and our, our friendships as brothers have grown substantially since we've gotten out on our own as we've gotten older. We've moved all over the place and stuff like that, and when we get together, it's, it is what it is. And it's a ton of yep. fun. So, you know, I, I, I'm super blessed. I'm just so blessed um, blessed in that regard. So it's definitely with my brothers. Pick your favorite one. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I was about to answer. <laughs> no, I'm totally no, that'd be kidding. nice. I could pick up three. It's, I could pick up three listeners just like that. Yeah. <laughs> just. <laughs> Who does on this episode? John Edson talks about his brothers and which one is the best and which one sucks. <laughs> So, uh, and thanks for sharing. Appreciate yeah, th- thanks well, for sharing, man. Dusty, thank you for sharing. Yeah. Oh, guys, I, it is my pleasure. All right, recommendations, and we'll roll. Um, Tommy, would you like to go first? You know, I have not. Uh, I feel like I don't have a ton of interesting things to share. So I will... Um, I'm going to go out on a limb. I haven't even watched the whole thing yet. I'm going to stick to my my trend of children's movies. Um, actually, what I was going to say is, like, my, my recommendation was just be kind, don't be a dick. Like, that was kind of a recommendation I was thinking about recently with all the stuff that's flying around. and But a more actionable one, Everett and Milo have really gotten into the Netflix movie Vivo, which is... Mm. Produced, uh, written by uh, Lin Manuel, the guy from uh, who, who wrote Hamilton, and it's about you know it's about an outcast kid finds an un, uh, unlikely friend. It's very musical. Uh, if you like the music of Hamilton, it's very spot on, similar style. And it's just just a fun tale, a little fun tale. I haven't seen the whole thing, but the soundtrack is absolutely awesome. And, you know, if you're going to watch a movie and you want to get off, like, the Frozen soundtrack, this is uh, this is a nice way to do it. So, anyway, it's on Netflix, and it's free if you have Netflix, so you don't have to pay the Disney extra. So, Vivo. Yep, Vivo. I, uh, I've only seen noiseless aspects of the screen. I downloaded it and just like let Walter watch it when we were on, uh, we sat on a tarmac for two hours during a thunderstorm. 
Ooh. And so, like, no sound. And, like, just, like, be mesmerized by these movie pictures, kid. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth it. I, I told Everett today, I'm like, he's, like, telling me the story. I'm like, tell, tell me about tell me what happens. He's five now. And you can imagine, like, we don't get past, like, the opening credits when he's telling me, like, <laughs> like what, what happens oh, in yeah. the movie. But, like, you know, I've, I've when we were on vacation, they playlist, they watched it a lot. And I could hear it playing in the background. And I'm like, this is some good stuff to it. It's got, it's, it's got, a, it's got a nice flavor to it. So. Awesome. Yeah. Devo. Give Netflix. it a shot. I should, I should write these down so I don't have to re-listen to make all the show notes. <laughs> uh, my recommendation is a piece of advice I'm sure we've all heard before. Um, it's something to think on. Suffering is optional. Suffering is optional. I have. I am in week one, day four, of a 20-week program for a marathon. Nice. Uh, my Thank you, John. Uh, running, running the Disney Marathon in January, and uh, it's it's detailed, right? Like I'm I'm in it. I'm gonna nail it this time. Like, did you write your own programming, least, or did you like? Yeah. Did you? Okay. Yeah. So I I studied several different sixteen and twenty week programs. The logic into like why they were built, the pacing like why you should build certain speed, breath work, cadence work. I did a ton of reading around it. And then I built something that I thought I would also like for my personal aesthetics, cross training work. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's my program. We'll see how it works out. Cool. And to me, that was more fun than just like, you know, downloading the, yeah, the, the runner's yeah, world right. top rated. So, but you know, it follows the, the same principles that most of your, your programs will, but uh, I'm I'm just reminded that like picking up a very difficult task voluntarily takes away the difficulty to a high degree. The struggle actually feels joyful. Like I am. I've got a five-mile run tomorrow, a seven-mile run on Saturday, and I can't wait. I'm pumped. And if somebody just, like, made me run five miles instead of doing, like, the the type of CrossFit workouts I tend to enjoy, I gotta be like, oh, running sucks. Like, you hear CrossFitters say it all the time, right? Running sucks. But the burden voluntarily lifted is no burden at all. And I think that's true for any part of life, like parenting, your job. You get to choose whether it's suffering. And I have felt reinvigorated by latching onto that idea and wanted to just pass it on. It's like the Jocko. Oh, yeah? Oh, yep. y- your kid was up all night? Good. You got to Good. spend more time with him, right? So that's. I like that. I was suffering today in the garage doing some burpees. Mm. Suffering. It's like, I'm going to pass out, dude. I need some applesauce. <laughs> I love seeing a Tommy Cooksey, a Tommy Cooksey CrossFit workout with just like eight minutes in the 180 heart range. Dude, when it, when, look, when I spike, there is no bringing it back down. It's up there, baby. It's just hilarious. To me. It's like, <laughs> dude, you're in your mid-30s. Spend some time on recovery. Dude, I don't, I do. I do. Sure. <laughs> Got an active heart, bro. Get off me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. 
John, any recommendations for uh, for the crowd here? Yes. So I'm going to go with a little bit. My goal on this is to be a little bit more lighthearted. I feel like conversationally with you guys, everything's been so serious that I, from from for me in terms of what I've had to communicate about. So I'm excited to to go a little bit more lighthearted here. It's a TV show, and it's kind of based off of what you guys talked about regarding Sir Richard Branson in terms of since there's now a, a current push for interstellar travel, Elon Musk is going to have us on Mars here shortly. I know that there's some Can't debate wait. about that. I love it. I absolutely love it. And yes. I, was, I, I was watching a, a video the other day of Elon Musk giving a tour of, uh, of, of, of like Starship base or something like that in Austin. And it was just like, so in the spirit of interstellar, not so much interstellar, but, you know, space travel, um, there's a, what I believe to be the greatest science fiction TV series ever created which is Stargate SG-1, and I believe you can find it on Netflix. <laughs> it's, it is 11, 11 seasons and two full-length feature films about, if you ever want to go on an epic adventure with, I'll give them their, their final rankings by the end of the show, Brigadier General Jack O'Neill, Colonel Samantha Carter, Dr. Daniel Jackson, and our, inter, what, what's an alien called? Interterrestrial? Ter, what are they called? Extraterrestrial. Extraterrestrial friend, Teal'c. Um, I tell you what, man, I've gone on many of the adventure with those four on this, on, 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 on the cinematic screen and it's 11 series seasons of lighthearted, just goodness. Um, be, ca be careful though. Cause if it strikes, a, if it strikes a chord, you can find yourself in a bit of a, it's a long binge. Let's just say that. Yeah. I was going to say, they don't make them 11 seasons anymore. <laughs> no, but no. that's, that's a super fun, super lighthearted show. No agendas, nothing like that. Just good, good lighthearted fun. I love that. I love it. Man, I would... Top sci-fi shows of all time. I'm reading opinion. a sci-fi... Hey, look. How else would you rank it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no standard metric for art other than your own subjectivity. I, uh, I'm currently reading a sci-fi novel called The Three-Body Problem. And I'm loving the Marvel what if time travel stuff on Disney Plus. Mm. Like, I don't know if I'll ever watch non sci fi stuff again. It's the only fantasy I want to live in. <laughs> I don't know, man. Regular fiction? No. Hey, Make it science. The, the, the Harry Potter uh, Octo trilogy really just spoke to me. We just finished it, and it was. Phenomenal! It was so fantastic. Good. It was m so much darker than what I expected it was going to be. Um, right? Good for adults. It's great. I got like, now. I'm at the point where I'm like, I don't know how old my kid can be when we start watching this, dude. Like, maybe twelve. How do you think you'd ever put a decal of like I don't know your favorite Dumbledore quote on your kid's wall? That's not now. Well, maybe I, I, I said my I said my kid would never have Crocs, and yet here we are with some some blue Crocs on his feet. So, you know, probably <laughs> just plaster it on there. We all, we all make mistakes. <laughs> all right, guys, John, I can't say thanks enough, dude. Man. Absolutely, and I I do feel like every time we have you on, we we tend just because we tend to like hang on the military route, we. We have to have a really serious conversation. I almost feel a little bit bad about that, <laughs> but thank you for being game. It's it's been it has been good for me. I'm gonna be like rolling this over in my head for several days. Yeah, same here. And let's do this. Let's pick a different topic, unmilitary, 
And uh, John, we you just whatever you want to talk about. You want to talk about you know woodworking. You want to talk about rowing to fight cancer? Heck yeah, that. that was a, that was. I'm, John, are you awesome. in? Uh, we're putting you on the spot on the pod. Of course. Well, I've already, <laughs> you see I've already how casual that was, Tommy. There was there was no him hawing. There was no let me check my schedule. Yeah, it took me like six weeks to reply to Dusty. <laughs> <laughs> All I know is the last time we did the row 24, somebody brought uh, Bojangles biscuits, and I was like, "Yeah, hey, don't you don't you worry about food and supplies." You know, I got the you only covered. thing that was missing that we never set up that would have been just so phenomenal would have been the projector and the screen with like some know, remember the Titans playing while you're rowing, some Office playing for a little while, like just some like pass the time. We can make it happen. We can get it done. It'll be easier here. We're going to do it here at my place. That's it's awesome. a controlled environment, a smaller group, particularly with the Delta variant, which I don't understand at all. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm just going back to protocol as it was. Yep. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep it tight and we'll make it good. Cool. But awesome. I want let me thank you both in advance for being part of it. It means the world to me. For sure, man. man. For sure. All right, fellas, John, have a wonderful it, evening. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. Talk to you all later. Dusty, see you, man. All right, see you guys. Peace.